If you're relatively new to Grace, let me extend a welcome to you from this church family. We extend a special welcome to those who are single, married, divorced, filthy rich, dirt poor, e no habla inglés. We extend a special welcome to those who are crying newborns, skinny as a rail, or could afford to lose a few pounds. We welcome you if you can sing like Andrea Bocelli or like our pastor who can't carry a note in a bucket. You're welcome here if you're just browsing, just woke up, or just got out of jail. We extend a special welcome to those who are over 60 but not grown up yet, and to teenagers who are growing up too fast. We welcome soccer moms, NASCAR dads, starving artists, tree huggers, latte sippers, vegetarians, junk food eaters. We welcome those who are in recovery or are still addicted. We welcome you if you're having problems or you're down in the dumps or if you don't like organized religion. We've been there too. If you blew all your offering money at the dog track, you're welcome here. We welcome those who are inked, pierced, or both. We offer a special welcome to those who could use a prayer right now, or had religion shoved down your throat as a kid, or got lost in traffic and wound up here by mistake. We welcome tourists, seekers, doubters, bleeding hearts, and you. You are welcome here in this church. We hope that you find grace to be a place where you can heal if you've been beaten up by churches, beaten up by other Christians, or beaten up by religion. We want this church to be green pastures and still waters for you, a place of rest, a place of hope, a place of healing. We have prayed diligently for the Holy Spirit to help us create a gospel uh, culture of gospel plus safety plus time. That's what we're, we're aiming for here. We want this church to be a safe place for disciples who feel like failures. Who doesn't feel like that on Sunday morning? Imagine having to preach when you feel like a failure. Now you know how to pray for me on Sunday mornings. We want grace to be a place where people hear good news every single week and where they leave refreshed. That means then that there should be no safer place for wounded persons than the church. The church should be the safest place for the messiest of sinners. The church should be the safest place for those who have been wounded, even those who have been wounded by the church. The church should be the safest place for those who have undergone abortions, for those who have dealt with the trauma of abuse or those who have and are enduring the lingering, nagging pain of miscarriages. There should be no safer place for wounded persons than the church. 
And sometimes you have to preach that truth from a very weird verse in the Bible. So turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 14. We're just going to be looking at verse 21, but we're going to read a good portion of the chapter this morning. The reason we're not in 2 Corinthians this week is because it is Sanctity of Life Sunday. And on this day, churches celebrate that human beings as we just sang, are wonderfully made in the image of God, and therefore, they should not be murdered, especially in the womb. Death should not take place where life grows. And that's why we're in Deuteronomy chapter 14 today, because there's this weird verse about cooking baby goats that's perfect for Sanctity of Life Sunday. So, to Deuteronomy 14, to not cook baby goats, we go. Let's begin in verse 1 of Deuteronomy 14. I hope you found your way there. Fifth book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, chapter 14, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. You are sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. You shall not eat any abomination. These are the animals you may eat, the ox, the sheep, the goat, the deer, the gazelle, the roebuck, the wild goat, the ibex, the antelope, and the mountain sheep. Every animal that parts the hoof and has the hoof cloven in two and chews the cud, among the animals you may eat. Yet of those that chew the cud or have the hoof cloven, you shall not eat these, the camel, the hare, and the rock badger, because they chew the cud but do not part the hoof, are unclean for you. And the pig, because it parts the hoof but does not chew the cud, is unclean for you. Their flesh you shall not eat, and their carcasses you shall not touch." Of all that are in the waters, you may eat these. Whatever has fins and scales, you may eat. And whatever does not have fins and scales, you shall not eat. It is unclean for you. You may eat all clean birds, but these are the ones that you shall not eat. The eagle, the bearded vulture, the black vulture, the kite, the falcon of any kind, every raven of any kind, the ostrich, the nighthawk, the seagull, the hawk of any kind. The little owl and the short-eared owl, the barn owl and the tawny owl, the carrion vulture and the cormorant, the stork and the heron of any kind, the hoopoe and the bat. And all winged insects are unclean for you. They shall not be eaten. All clean winged things you may eat. You shall not eat anything that has died naturally. You may give it to the sojourner who is within your towns that he may eat it, or you may sell it to a foreigner. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Well, what do you do with that passage? It reads like an iTunes user terms and agreement form, doesn't it? We never read those things, do we? Why? Because we find that they're boring. It's just a bunch of rules and regulations and jargon that we don't care for. And so we just click yes. And we might be tempted to approach Deuteronomy chapter 14 that way. Just click, yes, I have read and agree to the terms. 
but we'd miss out on some wonderful truths about our God that are found in a list of animals that include the bearded vulture, the nighthawk, the hoopoe, and the bat. I mean, who knew a menu containing roasted ibex and grilled roebuck could teach you about Jesus and cause your heart to love him more and to love your neighbor more? So what in the world do you do with a passage like this, especially verse 21, which speaks about sautéing a baby goat in milk? Well, here's what you do. You preach it on Sanctity of Life Sunday. That's what you do. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk is the perfect verse for today. But before we dive into verse 21, let me point out a few things about the verses that lead up to verse 21. Number one, notice their sons. Right away, notice in verse 1, Moses reminds the nation of Israel of their relationship status with Yahweh, the sovereign Lord. He, their sons, sons of the Lord your God, they have been adopted into the family of God, and Yahweh is their father. So before Moses tells them what to do, before he tells them what they can eat and what they cannot eat, he reminds them of who they are, sons of the Lord your God. They aren't orphans. They haven't been abandoned, and they never will be. Maybe you need that reminder today that you aren't an orphan. No matter what is happening in your life, whatever hardship, whatever suffering, whatever sadness, whatever sorrow, you have not been abandoned by God. You simply are not an orphan. So stop living like one. You are not in danger of being unloved by God. He is with you and he will never abandon you. There will never be a day when your heavenly father doesn't come home and you have to ask, where's daddy? God has always been the helper of his people, the helper of his children, and he has no plans to change his plans with you and your situation. Christian, you're not an orphan. Stop living like one. Number two, notice they get to eat. It's easy to approach these kinds of passages and get hung up on all the you shall not eat verses, but the Lord goes out of his way to tell Israel all that they can eat. Deuteronomy 14 is actually an invitation for Israel to eat with and to enjoy the Lord. It's an invitation to the family dinner table. It's as if Yahweh is saying, come on in kids, supper's ready. This chapter is about fellowship and enjoying the Lord. Now, most people don't think of enjoyment when they think of the book of Deuteronomy, do they? Jesus did, by the way, because it's the most quoted book by Jesus. But most people don't think of enjoyment when they read the book of Deuteronomy. But this is God the Father in chapter 14 welcoming his kids to the family table. Isn't our God awesome? Third, notice the food. Now, 
every nation had food laws. Unless you think this was something that was just Israel. Man, God really was uptight about what they could and couldn't eat. Every nation in the ancient Near East had food laws. Every god and every religion, the Hittites, the Canaanites, the Babylonians, every religion in the ancient Near East had laws that specified what was clean and what was unclean. They all had food laws. And they knew that gods put taboos on certain foods. But in Deuteronomy 14, Yahweh graciously reveals to Israel where the boundaries are. He doesn't leave it to guesswork. In the ancient Near East, they didn't know. If you ate a goat one day and then there was an earthquake and it like took out 100 people, then you would make the connection of, I ate a goat, there was an earthquake, therefore we shouldn't eat goats anymore. That's how it worked in the ancient Near East in other cultures and religions. And here Yahweh says, I'm going to remove all of the guesswork so that you don't do that, and I'm going to tell you very plainly what is clean and what is unclean. And as a God-fearing Israelite, you wanted to honor the name of the Lord, and so you happily obeyed these food laws. And that's really what they're about. We'll talk about it in a minute. It's about honoring the Lord. Third, notice they're holy. The theological foundation, along with verse 1, which mentions that they are sons, the theological foundation is also found in verse 21. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The reason verse 1 says they could not cut themselves like the foreign nations did in their worship ceremonies, they would cut themselves and bleed We see that in 1 Kings 18, is that right, with Elijah on Mount Carmel? 19? I think it's 19. Anyway, the reason they could not cut themselves like the foreign nations did in their worship ceremonies, and the reason they could not eat certain foods is because they were holy, meaning they were set apart to the Lord. That's what the word holy means. It means to be set apart, to be different. The nation of Israel was called to be different from the surrounding nations. Not perfect. They were sinners. But they worshipped Yahweh and therefore they were to be different. Okay, back to verse 21. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. So what in the world does this verse have to do with sanctity of life Sunday? Answer, everything. The principle couched in this obscure verse is this. Whatever God intended to be a means of life should never be turned into an instrument of death. Whatever God intended to be a means of life should never be turned into an instrument of death. The mama goat's milk was made for the baby goat, not the baby goat for the milk. The mama's milk was meant to bring nourishment and comfort to her baby. A mama goat's milk was not made to be used as a sauce to cook her own baby in. And so this weird verse is all about life. The life that God intended for all of his creation to enjoy. This is a verse about the natural order of things. Mothers are to have babies, whether human or animal, and those babies were made to be nourished by their mama's milk and to grow up and to live life. Baby goats were not made to be cooked in the very thing, the milk of their mother, that should have given them life and nourishment. So whatever God intended to be a means of life, Moses is saying, should never be turned into an instrument of death. 
Yahweh did not want his people to take anything that was meant for life and use it as an instrument for death. Now, you don't use the principle of life as an agency of death. And that can be applied many ways today. Hospitals and doctors should protect and prolong life, not take life. Hospitals are supposed to be places that sustain life. Doctors are supposed to sustain life, not take it. And this is why Christians are pro-life. We are against abortion. We are against the murder of unborn children. That's what sanctity of life is all about. You don't join life and death. Therefore, a baby should not be killed in its mother's womb. That's joining life and death together. That's welcoming death in a place where only life should be. That's putting death inside a living person. And so if you're new to grace, you have to know this about us too. We are pro-life here. And we are against abortion. And we pray that abortion one day will be illegal. We pray and hope that one day we won't even have to have a sanctity of life Sunday. We are opposed to the killing of innocent babies. And because of this principle in Deuteronomy 14.21, we are also opposed to human trafficking. And we are opposed to slavery. And we are opposed to pedophiles who prey on children. And we are opposed to child abuse and any kind of assault. And we're opposed to terrorists who blow things up and chop off people's heads. And we're opposed to racism. That ugly, vile sin that sadly still haunts our country and our churches. And we're opposed to gossip and slander. Think about that. Because human beings are made in the image of God. The tongue was made to impart life, not death. The book of Proverbs is full of that. God intended our words to give life, not death. And that's all I'm going to say about that right now because I feel really convicted. Just let that truth roll around like a lozenge on your tongue for a moment. You see... Such a weird verse in an odd chapter, but oh, so relevant to our lives. Are we surprised? I mean, it is the word of God, isn't it? He gave this law so that we would value life and how it applies to many situations where we use something that is meant for life in order to bring death, like our tongues, Sorry to bring that up again. I'm sure most of you never mumble, grumble, complain, gossip, or slander like I do. So far from being an outdated, antiquated verse about cooking baby goats in the ancient Near East in the 14th century B.C., it becomes something that we can apply to our lives in many areas, like the use of our tongues, but even more so, abortion. Deuteronomy 14.21 undergirds why we are pro-life. The principle that's couched within here in Deuteronomy 14.21 undergirds our ministry here at Grace. That whatever God intended to be a means of life should never be turned into an instrument of death. 
And this principle actually extends to churches as well. Just as Israel was called to be different from the surrounding nations, so too are we. And just as Israel's worship was to be different, and just as they were to live in a community of faith that fostered healing and hope, so too are we. The nation of Israel was called to welcome the outsider, to invite the nations to come and see their God, how he loved them, how he cared for them, how he provided forgiveness and welcomed them to the family dinner table as sons and daughters. And so too are we. Churches are supposed to be places of life, not death. That's why the unclean animals listed in Deuteronomy 14 tend to be scavengers and predators. There appears to be here a prohibition against consuming animals that are scavengers and predators that have claws instead of hooves. What that is telling us about God is this, is that in his nature, God is not predatory in his Nature. He doesn't come after us with claws. And that was to be reflected even in the animals that they ate. Can you imagine eating and being reminded God is not this vicious taskmaster that's after us all the time, but that he's welcomed us as his sons and daughters to the family table? God doesn't come after us with claws. What did Jesus say? It was our call to worship this morning. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30. Come to me, all who labor or are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In other words, I don't have claws. Jesus is not predatory in his nature. And so his churches are not to be places where predators and scavengers thrive. Now, the past few years have shown us that there are many predators and scavengers in the church. And sadly, some of them have been pastors. We've seen it over the last year. God is cleaning up his church. And churches are not to be like predators themselves, clawing and attacking sinners with the law and with religion and rules and regulations. Churches are to be places where people feel safe, where they feel cared for. And just like Israel, we invite outsiders to come and see Jesus, how he loves us, how he cares for us, how he forgives us and how he welcomes us to the family dinner table as sons and daughters. Here's what happens, though, and many of you have the scars to prove it. Churches either feed and nourish and care for sinners, or they cook them and eat them up alive. Some churches just eat people up and then spit them out. But churches are meant to be safe places, the safest place. Places of rest, places of green pastures, places of still waters. We want to be a place of healing and hope for people who have been beat up by other churches. So you see how this weird verse about cooking baby goats in their mother's milk applies to us today? And people think the Old Testament 
especially all of these case laws and food laws, is boring. No way. I see the welcoming arms of Jesus in Deuteronomy chapter 14. And because he welcomes us, we want to be safe and welcoming, a safe and welcoming place for bruised, broken, and beat up sinners. So there should be no safer place for wounded persons than the church. We honor the name of the Lord when we care for the wounded. And that's really what Deuteronomy 14 is all about. It's actually an application of the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Deuteronomy 5.11. Now, here's the way the book of Deuteronomy is structured. Moses gives the Ten Commandments in chapter 5, and then he starts unpacking what it looks like in everyday life in ancient Israel. How do you apply those Ten Commandments? And so one by one, in order, Moses tells Israel, here's how you apply the Ten Commandments. And so all of these laws and rules and regulations that you underline feverishly and highlight and circle in your Bibles when you're reading through it, that's Moses, at least in the book of Deuteronomy, applying each of those commandments. And Deuteronomy 14 is the application of not taking the Lord's name in vain. Now, let me unpack this. I wasn't going to. I took it out of my notes, and I was like, you know what? I'm going to do this. So media tech guys, we'll go off course here for a minute. The third commandment found in Deuteronomy 5 says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, what does that mean? The Hebrew reads, You shall not lift up the name of Yahweh for a false purpose. This phrase here, lift up for a false purpose, can mean uh, being false or deceitful with respect to speaking. Like it's used in describing and spreading a false report or a rumor about someone. It can mean being false in worship, being false in prophecy, or being irreverent with God's name and making it the butt of jokes. But to, to take the name of the Lord in vain has a wider application too because of how it's used in Job. Bruce Waltke notes, to take God's name to falsehood or to lift it up to falsehood is to proclaim something false in the name of God. Churches that proclaim false theology are guilty of breaking this commandment. This Hebrew word is also used with Reference to malevolent actions, to, to lift up the name of Yahweh for a false purpose. You can do that even in the, how, how evil you are, how you treat someone. And so to take the name of the Lord in vain is to worship him falsely, to misspeak for him, to spread a false report or gossip about someone, or some kind of malevolent action. And we see this in Deuteronomy 14, don't we? False worship is being prohibited by not cutting their foreheads like the pagan nations would do in their worship ceremonies. We see it in the malevolent action of cooking a baby goat in its mother's milk. And so all of these laws in Deuteronomy chapter 14 are actually unpacking the third commandment. But all too often, we view these kinds of laws as this random collection of seemingly unrelated stipulations. Like Moses just said, let's see if the spaghetti's done and let's just throw these verses on the wall. There you go, right? They appear to be haphazardly thrown together without any order, structure, or unity. 
but they're carefully arranged and they correspond in topic in order to each of the Ten Commandments. How did they apply the third commandment in everyday life? By what they ate, by what they didn't do in their worship ceremonies. And so these unconditional moral absolutes in the Ten Commandments find practical expression in everyday Israelite life. So if you wanted to know how to apply the third commandment to your life, Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 1 to 21, that's the cutoff break there, told you how to do it. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, found practical expression in normative principles like you shall not cut yourselves, the pig is unclean for you, you shall not eat it, you shall not eat the eagle, the bearded vulture, the black vulture. Because if you were eating something predatory and scavenger in nature, you were saying, this is what our God is like, and he's not that way. You were lifting up the name of Yahweh in falsehood. All right, that was for free. Wrote my thesis on in seminary on the tenth commandment. What did it look like to covet? How did you? How in the world did you tell if someone was coveting in their heart? Well, there are some commandments there in chapter twenty-four and twenty-five of Deuteronomy that unpack what it is. This coveting in the heart leads to covetous actions. So, if you're interested in talking about that, I'd love to. All right, back to where we are. We honor the name of the Lord when we are a hospital for bruised and broken sinners. We honor the name of our God when people come to grace and they leave and say, it was like green pastures and still waters today at church. I'm refreshed. I heard the good news of the good shepherd. I was told that my sins are forgiven. I feel safe here. That honors the Lord. That glorifies Jesus. And that's what Deuteronomy 14, 21 is all about. It's about life and safety and peace and shalom and wholeness and acceptance. Sue Liljenberg says, The reality of abortion should break the heart of every Bible-believing Christian. At the same time, mercy should flow to those who've believed a lie and chose to abort an unborn child. When we talk about abortion in public, what is our default attitude? Grief or condemnation? Do our billboards, bumper stickers, and social media posts wound or heal? Brothers and sisters, let's reach out to post-abortive men and women. Let's tell them they're loved and that Jesus makes all things new. While there is a much-needed effort to rescue the unborn, may we apply the same effort to reaching the wounded and the ashamed. There should be no safer place for wounded persons than the church. Being pro-life is far more than being anti-abortion, but it isn't less than that. Listen, if you've had an abortion, please know that your past abortion is not your identity. Your identity is your present adoption. In Christ, you are a beloved child of God. Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 1 tells you that. You are God's daughter. Your present adoption, not your past abortion, is now your identity. And if you're a man and you encourage your girlfriend or your wife to have an abortion, that's not your identity either. You are adopted and you are in Christ, brother. 
Your present adoption, not some past abortion, is your identity too. And because of that, the sin that you just can't seem to shake, you can't seem to forget it, Jesus can't remember. Believe that today. Receive that. There's grace for you for whatever pain or trauma or abuse that you have experienced in this life. In their book, Rid of My Disgrace, Hope and Healing for Victims of Sexual Assault, Justin and Lindsay Holcomb highlight the beauty of the grace of the gospel. They say grace is available because Jesus went through the valley of the shadow of death and rose from death. The gospel engages our life with all its pain, shame, rejection, lostness, sin, and death. And so now to your pain, the gospel says, you will be healed. To your shame, the gospel says, you can now come to God in confidence. To your rejection, the gospel says, you are accepted. To your lostness, the gospel says, you are found and I won't ever let you go. To your sin, the gospel says, you are forgiven and God declares you pure and righteous. To your death, the gospel says, you once were dead, but now you are alive. We want people to come here to this church and find this kind of hope. We want people to come to grace and say, the blood of Christ took away my guilt, but the body of Christ took away my shame. That's what we want to do. Well, people who come here and say, the blood of Jesus Christ spilled on the cross took away the guilt of my sin, but the body of Christ at Grace Baptist Church took away my shame. We want to be a church that specializes in shame-taking, taking shame away from forgiven sinners. We want to remind people that they are clean, free, and loved, and forgiven. We want to be a church and to have a church culture of shame-taking. We want to be shame-takers. That's the culture that we're shooting for here at Grace. Lots and lots of gospel. We don't want to merely be a church that proclaims the words of the gospel. We want people to hear the music too. We want them to feel the music of the gospel and then dance. We want this church to be a safe place where you can come and say, Tell me the gospel story again. I blew it this week, and I need to hear it again. A place where we encourage each other with this good news, and we take shame away from each other. Let me encourage you with the gospel now. If you have turned from your sins and you're trusting in Christ alone, his perfect sinless life is yours now. Your sins don't belong to you anymore. They belong to Jesus when you have his righteousness. You are clean. You are washed. You are forgiven. You are loved. And Jesus cannot remember your sins. You are free. You are free to confess. Even here, you're free to confess how you have lied and cheated and worried and manipulated and harbored bitterness. And refused to forgive and slandered and gossiped and faked godliness. You're free to dance. Remember all those food laws that we read earlier? That was God inviting us to his feast. We don't have to obey these food laws 
anymore. And all the bacon lovers said, amen. Now they have been fulfilled in Christ. But the abiding principles are still there. And we take those principles like we did with Deuteronomy 14. And now we apply them to our context and to our culture. And now the main food law, if you will, is that we have the Lord's Supper where God invites sinners to come and fellowship with him and to celebrate the sacrifice of his son Jesus. God invites us, his own sons and daughters, to the dinner table for a family meal. How wonderful our God is. How merciful and how kind. We'll close now with something that Chad Bird said. And let this be your invitation, your personal invitation to Jesus this morning. And if you're not a Christian and you have not repented of your sins and turned to Jesus, this invitation is for you right now. Come and open the empty hands of faith and trust that Jesus lived and died for you, that he was raised from the dead, that he ascended to the right hand of God the Father. His arms are wide open, ready to welcome you home, child. Come. And if you are a Christian, this invitation is still for you. You don't ever grow out of it. It's for all of us. So come. Come with your sin. Come with the evil that still resides in and comes out of your heart and rolls off of your tongue. Come and be washed, cleansed, forgiven. Come. Come, you pole dancers and Sunday school teachers and crazy old cat ladies. Come to the feast. Come, you snotty-nosed brats and you dirty old men and abortionists, come to the feast. Come, you Bible-thumping Baptists and smells and bells Anglicans and holier-than-thou Lutherans, come to the feast. Come, you virgins and porn stars, you pious and predators, you straight as an arrow and you LGBTQs, come to the feast. It is finished. The lamb has been slain. His blood has painted the wicked world white. His table is laden with life and there's a place setting with your name written on it. Come to the feast. Have you slept with more people than you can remember? Come to the feast and be welcomed as a pure virgin in Jesus the righteous one. Have you murdered and stolen and raped and devastated life after life along the way? Come to the feast and be welcomed as a saint by the Holy One of God. Have you vomited up more meals than you've digested? Cut yourself just to feel something real? Starved yourself to skin and bones just to feel unfat? Come to the feast and be welcomed as dropped dead gorgeous by the one who is incarnate love. Have you faithfully prayed, fasted, done devotions, served in soup kitchens, tithed from your gross income, and memorized 1,000 verses? There's room at the table for you too. Come to the feast and be welcomed by him who takes away your filthy self-righteousness and clothes you with his own. Come to the tomb of Jesus and laugh at the ugly, deformed, twisted face of death. 
Come to the throne of Jesus and let the Father hug you and kiss you and wipe your tears away. Come to the feast where evil and good, wise and foolish, shameful and shaming are welcomed as citizens of the kingdom. Let no one say, I am unworthy, for Christ makes you worthy. Let no one say, I have sinned too much, for your sin is no longer your own. Let no one say, I don't believe enough, for Christ has trusted perfectly in your stead. Let no one say, I have blasphemed, for Jesus has exchanged your curse for a blessing. Everything is ready. Let no one be left hungry. Gather all and bring them in. Go to the highways and byways, bars and alleys, nursing homes and hospitals, seminaries and sex shops, and bring them to the feast. Let no one be left behind. The world, the whole jacked up, navel-gazing, sin-loving, evil-addicted world has been set right by the God who died and rose again. All are forgiven, all are covered, all are welcome. Come, one and all, come to the feast. Let's pray. Jesus, we take you up on your invitation to come to you. Thank you that you are gentle and lowly in heart with sinners. Lord, we repent. We ask you to forgive us of all the impure, evil thoughts, impure and evil words that have just rolled off of our tongues, impure and evil actions that we have done, and more embarrassingly, the impure and evil motivations which drive everything we think, say, and do. We confess our sin, and we thank you that you spilled your blood to wash them all away, and that you've declared us righteous, and that we are now clean. And so we're going to cheer up, and we're going to rejoice, Father, that you love sinners. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.